0: How would you prefer to be introduced, Elliot? <laughs> Just <laughs> okay, Elliot. Okay. Elliot with two T's. Yeah. Is that, is that rare? rare? Having two T's. It probably. is rare.
1: Yeah, I created an email alias on my like first week with one T, and it's quite often used. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, as a catch-all. Okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have the the Gmail one. But people have sent job offers to the wrong email address.
0: Man, yeah, that's, <laughs> I wish I had that problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's the other direction. So Elliot, would oh, one to right, right. has right. some right. job offers.
0: Yeah, have you connected with that person?
1: I tried to reach out, but I didn't really get a response.
0: There's um, another Bradfield student, Pooja, mm. who I worked with. And there's someone with her exact name. And I think Pooja found her on LinkedIn, Pooja Ready, connected with her they become friends, they've uh-huh. met up in real life, uh, they even tried recording a podcast together. So I think there's an opportunity. <laughs> That's cute. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, Elliot, why don't you take a stab at just introducing the the world to you? Who are you?
1: Okay. Yeah. Wait, have we started recording?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I always do that. <laughs> so all your caveats That's are in there. great. And <laughs> so, um, preambles.
1: Excellent. Um, yeah. Wow. Where
2: do, we, where do we begin? Well, I'll start. Okay. I'm
0: Charlie. Hi Charlie, this is Oz. You can say hello.
2: Hi everyone, this is Oz. <laughs> hey Oz.
0: This is the, this is the Escaping Web podcast. Cool. We're here this week, this month uh-huh. with Elliot with cool. two T's. So Elliot, just um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Which is a horrible question, I know, but
1: it's it's all right. Yeah, I am somebody who really likes intellectual challenges, but has spent my entire career recognizing that being drawn in by intellectual challenges isn't the way to go in the industry. You have to be so practical and you have to be so like pragmatically minded. And that's been a constant, constant balancing act for me.
0: You think that's, that's the theme of your life, of your career? Is this, has always been a problem for you or an issue?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, if I had my ideal life, I would like live in an ivory tower or I would live in some very calm place in the middle of the of the desert somewhere and like spend all my time reading textbooks and like solving fun problems that have no practical application yeah. but that is not my life right now
0: got it it's kind
2: of uh, impressive that many people like you I would say like me as well uh, but I mean tons of software engineers like this uh-huh. who are, are drawn to it because of that problem-solving aspect and do actually legitimately get a decent chunk of that or at least at the very least they're um, imminently employable as a consequence of that like people who will uh, I had a friend who um, uh, learned to code when he was like 22 or something just because he got hooked on project Euler problems Mm. and uh, like a year or two later is this uh, super high-flying derivatives trader uh, just on the back of being able to code like that but to go from project Euler problems to um uh, to, to being well paid like there aren't very many hobbies where you're like oh I just love pottery or I just love horse riding or something where <laughs> <laughs> it turns yeah. into a legitimate yeah. well paid career cool well we can talk about
1: Project Euler in a bit I, I'm such a big fan of that but in terms of the hobby turning into a high paying career I would say that yes while that is the case it is like it's in the uncanny valley because it is it gives you just enough for you to be like yeah I'm getting some of this and it is very in demand right now. But, but at the I, same time, it's... Oh, go ahead.
0: I'm just hung up. Is, is it really Project Euler? I think I've been saying Euler. You wouldn't be
2: the first person to okay. say Oh, uh-huh. it's, confirmed, I, Euler it's, it's just, confirmed Euler. I, Euler is
1: the way to go if you want to troll everyone. I, to to
0: troll everyone. <laughs> Perfect. So I've been inadvertently doing that? Great. Yeah. Uh, is that why no one's respecting me when I bring <laughs> I mean, this up? Yeah, and then, as long as you
1: do it with a self-aware sense of... Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Also, make sure... That when you're talking about computing the greatest common denominator, it's the Euclidean algorithm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good God! Uh, so, Elliot, I think I think this realization is cool. Like, I'm I'm curious. Like, as a kid, were you yeah. just as into intellectual pursuits and like not doing your math homework because you were yeah. digging into something obscure about um, least common denominators or something <laughs> like that?
1: Wow. Yeah. I I think as a kid, I was more all over the place yeah so I feel like I let's see I, I'm just gonna go back and talk about all the different pieces that kind of fit into fit into my Situation. programming upbringing yeah. yeah so my mom actually studied computer science in university back in Shanghai and so as a kid growing up I would see like she left a copy of the first edition K&R C programming language book and I remember flipping through that as a as like an like a ten year old and be like, what in the world is this? But this looks so cool. And I also remember playing around with the. There was a game in written in Q Basic where there was these gorillas, oh, gorillas that were like throwing yeah. these bananas, and you had to like set the trajectory. I I don't know. I just I was around all that sort of stuff. And what kind I, of computer did, all that stuff. did you have at home? Windows three point one.
0: Nice. Yeah, I remember that one. I I even had a crappy laptop that you could. Add some emulator on top that would simulate Windows 95, but it still was running on 3.1. It was great. That sounds like a bad time. No Windows
2: 3.1 was still in the vintage of uh, cooperative multitasking operating systems. So it wasn't preemptive. So like if you had a program with a bug in it, it would just take down the (laughs) entire system because it wouldn't wouldn't (laughs) yield control back to the operating system. Like, which is fascinating and stop me if you're not interested in this aspect of operating systems but <laughs> it's fascinating because we had really good operating systems before that and then we had this massive regression to get to like uh, consumer desktop mm-hmm. uh, operating systems like all the mac os up to mac os 10 uh like all of this kind of regressed uh, toy like uh, operating system including corporate multitasking again until mac os uh, 9 uh
0: but, yeah, Can, I, go, have okay. one, I have a couple observations about this One, I feel like time began For Microsoft There was sort of like When Bill Gates sort of started the company uh-huh. And then it for me it jumps all the way to Windows 3.1 And I've gone back in the his the Wikipedia thing And like I'm shocked that there was Windows 1 or 2 uh-huh. Like It felt like no one really saw those things Did you, either of you use Windows 1 or I've 2? I
1: have not heard of Windows 1 or 2 I, okay. It's DOS three point one ninety five. Yeah. That was the
0: progression
2: I remember you using MS DOS. Uh, right. For sure. But did
0: yeah. you use Windows 1 or 2? I did not, no. Okay. No. So, they like 3.1, they really came in with a bang. It's just one weird observation I have. The second is, Oz, can you explain? I've always sort of wondered this. Like, even on Windows 3.1, even mm-hmm. on Windows 95, it felt like DOS was still the underlying system. And you had to, like t- at least I remember, like typing in W I N to, like, go into Windows. Oh, yeah. I do not what, remember what was that what that about? The, like window management okay. aspect of, like, right. how that fit into the. Okay, yeah, you know that? I remember
2: typing in W-I-N
0: also, right. but not much beyond that. Okay, cool. Thank, thank you for this digression.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, depending on um, how you think about it, the GUI is just this like add-on to the rest of the operating system. It's right. just like this event loop that takes mouse events and yeah, shows you know. to Windows or whatever.
0: Okay. <laughs> nice. All right, well, we're, we're going, I thought maybe you were going to say, like, you guys had a Commodore 64 or something like Oh, no, in that no, no
1: not, not that old school. Okay. But I did have my first Linux to show was Slackware Linux. So that's where I'll pick up my street cred. Thank you very okay, much. Okay,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, cool. So let's go, your your mom's leaving around hints. Was she leaving these around for you to like pick up um, for bedside reading or you? Uh,
1: at this point, I have no idea what my parents' intentions were. No. I'm just not gonna try to, try to play that mind game, but mm-hmm. the end result is I ended up just being pretty interested in that sort of stuff growing up. Okay, Just like, ah, oh, yes. Computers.
0: Were you in high school programming like at that point? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in high school, I was—I would say the majority of my high school programming was in a language called TI-83 Basic. So we had graphing calculators in, mm. in many of our classes, and I would not pay attention in class and just spend all my time coding up little little things that would like help me help me do my homework or like little mm-hmm. little fun apps. But yeah, I remember
0: like, the, the calculators had like a whole suite of games and stuff. There was, one, I think, there was one called like Drug Wars that you could play, where you were just like simulating like being a, a local dealer or something. And people, <laughs> I, a lot of kids, like in, in my high school, were playing that instead of uh, okay graphing things.
1: I, I was not that advanced on my on my graphic <laughs> calculator, but I did have a Palm Pilot game. Speaking of dealers, called Space Trader, where it was like the classic Palm Pilot game where you fly around and you, like, sell goods at different spaceports.
2: That's sweet. And you were also running QBasic because you were hacking gorillas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if any gorillas were hacked in the making of my CS education.
0: And, and that like, are you taking computer science courses in high school? Maybe, maybe not. Or is this just truly, like, a, I, to you, a just a fun hobby? It,
1: it was yeah. a fun hobby. I did try taking the AP computer science, the mm-hmm. advanced placement computer science course, but 3 days in, I wrote some code and I used a while loop and the teacher said, you can't you have to use a for loop for this. They docked points, and that's when I knew I was out of there. <laughs> I, was like, I am not sticking around for this.
0: Oh lord. Yeah, have you had any observations into like what's happening now with sort of computer science actually getting into the curriculum and like how oh, that's it's, been working it's the worst they yeah. should just
2: like burn it all and start again okay and by start again i mean just don't touch it just like burn <laughs> it all stop teaching computer science at school just have hack clubs in all of them yep. just like create an escape valve give everyone a like ti grabbing calculator or something and just like let the kids do what they're gonna do which is make games and websites and just like, don't try and teach them, please.
0: That would be amazing. The inti- Like, the entire subject, you, ha- you just have this opportunity to just be weird and build stuff and make- have fun.
2: Yeah, even the teacher should, like, leave the room or something. Just, like, remove all the sharp objects, lock <laughs> the door, and just <laughs> yeah. let them make something. It just seems like such a disaster. I, I mean, it seems counterintuitive because uh, a lot of people think that I'd um, be a proponent of mandatory computer science education in, in schools. But I think as no soon way, as you make no. something non-voluntary, you just mm-hmm. destroy it. And that's what we did with mathematics. Uh, sure, sure, more people are numerate now than before we made it compulsory. But for, for every one person uh, who, who knows what a logarithm is, there are 99 who hate mathematics uh, and who, who can't see themselves using it ever. Yeah. Um, so I oh. feel like we've, we've destroyed that by making what it... Would, what
0: would that sort of free-form exploration look like for math? Like, I can get it with, like, hacking and, like, uh-huh. computer science and building something fun, but, like, w- describe the equivalent for mathematics to make math fun. Like, is they it give measuring? Them
1: okay. Give them like, fun problems. Like,
0: right. I, I think it's, um, it's maybe a little bit harder with mathematics
2: because uh, you, you can't just be like, hey, have a look at shapes and see if you can come up with uh, <laughs> Euclidean. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, uh, Although this, like, apparently, apocryphally, uh, Gauss uh, did this, like, as a kid. It was locked in his room oh. and uh, didn't have access to books or something. And it just, like, rederived derived uh, Euclidean uh, geometry. <laughs> I'm right? just going to call it that for no. now. Uh, but, but um, uh, so, uh, like, because there has been so much mathematics and because we would like kids to not have to spend their entire lives trying to figure out calculus... Mm-hmm. Um, giving them like some scaffolding objectives, some support, but, but making it mostly led by the, the kid, uh, like embracing the curiosity. Yeah. Um, David Pengley, uh, is a really good teacher of mathematics, um, and at the, at the tertiary level at universities. And, um, one of the things that he does is he will, uh, pick an interesting thing that happened in the history of mathematics And make a course entirely about that. So, uh, for instance, it's got one course, maybe we can put it in the show notes, where um, the entire course is based around a series of letters um, that a a woman, Sophie Germain, wrote to, I think, like Fermat uh, or Pascal or someone... Mm. And, um, uh, and and she wrote them secretly, like with a pen name, because if people found out she was a woman, they wouldn't take her seriously. And then she like uh, made some progress on Fermat's Last Theorem. Uh, and there's like a mystery of whether it was a soul or something. So it's a really fun like um, mystery,
0: yeah.
2: And uh, you, you're reading the original source, like the translated French letters. Um, and the course is basically learning number theory. Uh, well enough to understand the letters I and like this. make progress along the way, mm. so so that kind of thing I think is a fun way to to balance the like totally freeform uh, constructionist like let's just pe- put people in a room and uh, let them reinvent. See what whatever. happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, versus like uh, let's take everything as a foregone conclusion, teach it axiomatically, watch me at a blackboard <laughs> prove one theorem after another. Just the worst possible way to, oh, to
0: teach. That one other thing, I, maybe you tweeted this the other day, but I, I don't know if you saw it, Elliot. Uh, someone was posting their AP, computer science, textbooks, oh, table textbook yeah, contents. What did it say? That. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah it, was, it, it was something like... Um, uh, chapter one. <laughs> yeah, chapter one, like uh, binary encodings of data or something. Chapter two, using Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was like some, something, something that was actually, <laughs> actually computer science and then using Photoshop. Oh goodness! I
0: guess that is practical, but yeah, yikes. Yeah, so I, I think about that because I, for me, going through high school, I, yeah. I played a lot of computer games, and there there actually was a computer science class. I didn't take it. I remember going into the class because that's where the computers were, and playing slime ball yeah. as people next to me were like making a calculator. And in my brain, I never connected like, oh, I could make slime ball that I'm playing instead of playing slime ball because all the projects were like it didn't really interest me to do some of those. So from your perspective, like did you start to see this as like a burgeoning career or is it still just like, I'm a kid. I like to draw. I like to code, blah, blah. Actually, I, I, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I didn't, I didn't see it as a career for a long time. And actually I didn't basically my entire childhood. I was telling myself, yeah, computers are a tool. I don't want to go into computers for the sake of computers. They're really cool. I want to like use them to accomplish other things, but I don't want to be, a dev just to be a dev. That was kind of my mindset the, the whole time. And yeah, actually my first... I, I did a lot of web design as as like getting side money as a kid, but I never did any sort of programming or like any anything like that in, in, a, in a professional setting. It was always for fun. It was always just like intellectual stimulation or like, okay, oh, hey, let's see if I can make a Tron game or, or something.
0: Yeah. And did that change in college did you go to university to study computer science what did you yeah so after? i i
1: did not go to the university to study computer science i was all over the place in the university basically i had no idea what i wanted to do i took some classes in the math department the physics department some in the computer science department also but it was only like things that i i was like oh i'm interested in cryptography so i'm gonna take that one i took classes in Product design mechanical engineering bioengineering basically I was all over the place I had no idea what I was doing I was not on track to graduate <laughs> you you need to pick a major and like
0: <laughs> I was I was gonna say this sounds like super ideal for someone's university experience but like yeah. clearly they're not built for that sort of exploratory yeah meandering
1: I, you I think you can get some but you can't go all in on, on exploring yeah but yeah so I I did take a few pretty fun computer science classes in college, but I wasn't sort of going there with, I'm going to study computer science in mind. I definitely wasn't going there with, I'm going to be an engineer after I graduate in in mind.
2: Mm -hmm. Did you have something in mind to be after you graduated?
1: Yeah, I I was like, oh, maybe I'll be some flavor of scientist or maybe I'll be some flavor of designer slash artist. But I basically had no idea.
0: Yeah, I, I was. I didn't really think about it either, which was nice. I had a plan that I was going to be a lawyer, because my uncle was a lawyer, and I really thought there were only like three professions that you were either like a lawyer a doctor or you owned a franchise restaurant or something. Like it d- d- didn't connect the dots. And even college, I had a lot, bunch of meandering. I took one computer science class in college, but I was taking a lot of history, took music theory, da, 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 da. and I, d- I just. I liked that at university, I didn't really have to focus on the career versus like a lot of people who are like, yeah, totally. if you, if you have to make a decision about being a doctor when you're like 17 years old or 18 years old, and then it, you're just there on that track. And I feel yeah. it's nice to be able to have a little bit of exploration.
1: Definitely. Uh, that's not how I operate at all. I, I wonder if, like, if I had committed to that, if my 30 year old self would be like, oh, thanks. I'm, I'm set now. Or I'd be like, why <laughs> did you waste 10 years of my life? <laughs> and Jerry's out on that.
0: one. Yeah. Okay, so um, I feel like we're waiting for like a big reveal. Like, what happened? What happened next?
1: What happened? Yeah, basically, I was, I was, I was pretty burnt out with the whole university experience. I wasn't really. There was no end goal. I had, I had stopped being really excited about all the, all the courses or all the. Basically, the whole way that undergrad was structured, but it turns out that because I had been solving Project Euler my whole life for like basically since I was 16. I really enjoyed doing that for fun. It turns out that that set me up really well for technical interviews. And so it turned out that at the time where I was really unsure what I wanted to do, a bunch of my a bunch of my classmates at the time just said, oh, I'll, I'll refer you to the company that I'm doing an internship with. Maybe mm-hmm. you can give this a shot and, and see how it goes. And because of that background, I, I, I don't know. I still think... Uh, to, to your point earlier i still think it's both ridiculous and tremendously lucky that this hobby actually has has practical applications to to the extent that that it does so were you
0: exclusively doing project Euler problems or were you doing other problems too I was, ex- I,
1: was ex- I mean I had done other programming in other contexts yeah. either for a course or for fun but the majority of my my programming was probably project Euler like, is those. there a,
0: is, there's a finite number of these problems. I am assuming.
1: Yeah, at the okay. at the time, there were like three or four hundred. They've been okay. publishing but, more.
0: Okay, finite
2: enough that it seems like you could theoretically do them all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah. I think there is a thousand or something. Okay, fine. okay. and the- they get increasingly, increasingly difficult. <laughs> so,
0: yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah
1: the the week before my interview at Palantir. My literal preparation was to say, all right, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to lock myself in my room and solve a bunch of these Project Euler problems. And then that was all the preparation that I did.
0: Is that still advice that you would give out to people? Because it often feels like the advice when I'm doing prep, it's, what's that other site where all lead these problems? Code. Lead code. Yeah. Where lead codes are basically boilerplate for what you're going to be asked. Are mm-hmm. the Euler problems like, are they, do they give you a little bit more like, fun problem setting around the problem cool cool
1: so I have a lot of thoughts on this Okay.
0: first of all I think what I did
1: makes sense for junior candidates mm-hmm. I was getting an entry level position mm-hmm. I think it will not suffice for a more more senior position because there's going to be so many other things like software design and mm-hmm. architecture and talking about your experience and like talking about behavioral things so I think that alone can possibly get your foot in the door but I don't think it can, it can take you much further than that the other thing I want to say is that those problems, they are not as re- or okay, they are completely not relevant. The content of the problems is very, very mathy, very technical. You're going to be using ideas like the Chinese Remainder Theorem, or you're going to be using like the Euclidean algorithm, or you're going to be like, I don't know, what are what are some things you might do? Yeah, exotic techniques and exotic data structures and very mathematical mathematical things that absolutely will not come up in a software engineer industry interview. Mm -hmm. But I think what is valuable about it and what's more valuable about it than lead code is that they are, I I want to say this in a polite way, but I couldn't think of how to do it, so I'll give up and just say it. I think they're much harder than lead code. Mm -hmm. Like lead code problems, oftentimes you get a problem that's like, please reverse this linked list or please do this operation on a binary search tree there are problems that sort of check your understanding or in, at, on in some of the harder situations, they'll check whether you know some trick or you, you know, some famous like, Oh, you need to like do this to find a cycle. You need to like yeah, yeah. do the, the slow fast thing. But for Project Euler, I think it's just, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to like sit with it for hours or days and you just, I think the level of problem solving that it trains you to do, and the sense in which it trains you not to give up, I think that's the most value I got from it.
0: Wow, yeah, this is the teaching you how to think, teaching you how to problem solve. Who's the who's your problem solve guru that you love? The small book, Polya. Polya, this is Polya's method in practice that you kind of self-discovered.
2: You, you kind of have to self-discover Polya, I think, if you um, are going to make it through something like that because otherwise like it's, it's just too hard and like problem solving uh, really is about uh, persisting in the face of things being too hard yeah. uh, like otherwise it's pattern matching right mm-hmm. uh, so if you're if you're getting like deep into you know maybe the the first 50 to 100 project or the problems you can find and just solve uh, almost through brute force um, yeah. but uh, once you get a little bit deeper you realize you actually have to think about this uh, either you give up and we never hear, hear about you again, or uh, <laughs> you, find, you find some way to, to push through and you, you're effectively rediscovering a lot of the things that George Pollier is uh, encouraging you to do. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I like the way it's structured because the easier problems give you tips or insights that will help you solve the harder problems. It's like you need to use pieces of what you used before and it'll help you solve the, solve the later ones. I I like how it's very self-contained so you don't need to like go take a course or read an algorithms book. You solve easy problems and then the easy problems give you a leg up in solving the harder problems Mm -hmm. and it snowballs from there. I actually think that's a really good way to structure a course. Just only give them problems, start with very easy ones and then build up from there.
0: Well, now that's reminding me of um, the Silicon Zeros thing where Mm -hmm. you're blindly building logic gates or things out of line and then slowly over time building like the adder and the... Mux and all this other stuff, and you're know, at the end, you're like, Oh my god, I've made a monster computer here!
2: Yeah, I mean, in on level two or three out of five, you build a fully working CPU. Yeah. Like, how could there be more levels after this? Yeah. And then you, you like implement pipelining, you implement oh, okay. parallelism, and you don't even realize it. they are yeah. not saying this is pipelining, you just need to rediscover it in yeah. order to, it, yeah, it's just
1: amazing for sure. And that's how I learned dynamic programming actually, because there were so many of the problems that required that style of thinking that when I actually encountered dynamic programming in a formal sense I was like wait what's like similar to how you might say oh I, I just did this why, why are you making a big fuss about pipelining mm-hmm. I was like oh why are you making a big fuss about dynamic programming it's just this thing mm-hmm. so I think
2: teaching it that way it just makes it so natural I, I could go on about this I, I, I feel like all teaching should be based on the problems and not on the, not on the answers so like, oh, can
0: you dig in on that
2: so, um, the people who are teaching now, like say math professors or computer science professors, um, they only got to where they are because they were fascinated by problems, mm. pull the thread on on those, uh, solve some of the problems for themselves, or kind of uh, pull together solutions. They were motivated by the problems. Uh, you know, calculus was discovered because. People, multiple people, were motivated by the problems that required calculus mm-hmm. to solve them. Uh, all of mathematics is like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, it's those people end up teaching in a way where now they have the answers. They think that the students want the answers. But uh, in fact, the students need a similar kind of journey to them because otherwise it's unmotivated, like it's out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, when I was saying, like, if you're teaching mathematics by presenting an axiom and proving it and then presenting the next axiom and proving it. Mathematics isn't actually done that way. That's, yeah, the, like, yeah. that's the artifact of having done mathematics.
0: Yeah. So it feels like you either have to intrinsically be attracted to problems or be tricked into being puzzled <laughs> by them. Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah. like Silicon Zeros is a game. Obviously, someone uh, went, went into, Nicholas went into a lot of effort to design it so that it would be fun and you would be like in this kind of loop. I think project Euler maybe there's a little bit of design, a little bit of luck in the kind of feedback loop that you that you get, um, but uh, I think if you're putting together a course or you're you're like trying to set someone else up to learn, the worst thing that you can do is to teach in the conventional way of uh, here here are all the things that we know in order from like most foundational to <laughs> to most advanced or yeah. something.
1: And in my opinion, the worst is when they give you a result. They give you a proof, and the proof comes out of nowhere. Uh-huh. It's like this, this crazy trick. It's like you would never have thought of that if you were yeah. trying to discover it. But people seem to take pride in that sort of like elegant trick that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Whereas I think what students really need is seeing the messy reality and like being like, okay, first you try the obvious thing of doing this. Oh, that didn't work. But then you try this, and then you do this. Oh, and oh, cool. Look, we got to the result.
0: And so in asks, some cases, you can't really you? like imagine a driving course in San Francisco where they're like, hey, let's figure out from first principles how to park uphill on a hill. And, you, and and then we cut the emergency brake or whatever. And, like, obviously the answer is, like, you have to kind of turn the wheel to go into the thing. But if sure. you had to, if a student had to figure that, out, it could get really messy.
1: Sure. But if you could do that in a VR simulator or something, I would love that as a way to learn to drive.
0: Yeah. It's true because every time I get out of the car, I still have to, like, peer my head over and look to see what the other person ahead of me is doing. Do you think that the – do you envision a world where people are, like, the VR is, like, taking over education yeah. in some way and, like – we might be heading in that sort of direction. And I'm thinking of like that scene in Star Trek 2009 where Spock is like all the, they're on planet Vulcan and everyone's answering those questions and it looks kind of awesome, but also terrifying.
1: I don't want to make a declaration about the technology involved, but I will say that my ideal end result is where students, kids, they're free to make mistakes. They're free to like explore without having, for example, parents or teachers so scared that they're going to hurt themselves or they're going to break something. I think Having that freedom, being empowered to be like, "What does this button do?" I think that's mm. so important. Like, I see a lot of people who are scared to type a command or who are scared to like press a button, and as a result, they don't do the sort of exploration that I think you need in order to learn these topics in in a deep way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like when you're first learning the command line or the terminal. It's so foreign to your like the normal UI that you have, and you're like, I'm clearly going to ruin something. And there are a few commands that could ruin things, sure. but most of the time, you, I feel like you have to be constantly reassuring people: it's fine, you're going to be okay, you're allowed to explore. And I wonder where that, like, where that hesitation comes from. Is it just because it's so foreign, or it just looks complicated?
1: And that could be it. It could also just be the way people are raised, where I think parents might discourage kids from exploring too much or like trying too much it might be it might be from there. I'm, I'm not a parent though, so I can't, I yeah. can't say too much about this. I don't know if you have thoughts on what the ideal balance is between exploration and safety. Are you planning
0: to re- like release your future or your current child into the woods and have them be like fend for themselves? Like how do you like set up guidance and guide poles and still allow like weird exploration?
2: Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, personally definitely of the view that kids learn kids learn irrespective of there being teachers around um that the like natural inclination of the kid is to be curious explore the world and learn things so and i think this is the sustainable way to learn so i would love to put my daughter in situations where she is able to drive her learning enjoy her learning and uh, learn that way I don't think that's what a typical school looks like, unfortunately. So that's going to be some work, but that's what I want to do. Um, the question is like, if she wants to, uh, uh, weld something at the age of four and, uh, uh, like how encouraging should I be of that? And, um, uh, I'd like to think that I, I would be encouraging.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, there's a video we'll put in the show notes of, um uh, uh it's called A Little School in, in Denmark. And um, uh, it's one of these like kids that are out in the woods doing whatever they want kind of schools. And I mean, at the beginning, it seems pretty tame. The way they teach the kids to read is they wait until the kid picks up a book and like brings it to one of the... Uh, they don't, don't call them teachers, but whatever. they like the adults. Like only when the kid expresses a curiosity in reading do they present me. So this is a kind of tame yeah. thing that they do. But a couple more minutes into the video... Uh, you see a bunch that, like, go on a multi-day camp, like, eight-year-olds or something on a multi-day camp in the woods. They have these, like, big uh, hunting knives or something. It's become and Lord of the Flies. The or yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And then legitimately, like, welding. Like, with someone with a, a kid with a blowtorch. That's so amazing. Uh, who's doing metalwork? So, you're like, you know, some people do this without uh, fear that they're going to, you know, destroy children's uh, yeah. fingers or whatever and...
0: Can I, I, I just thought of a word when you were saying like focusing on problems versus solutions. Uh-huh. The word that can, like outcomes, I feel like I hear a lot about oh, outcomes. Okay. Is solutions the same as outcomes in this context?
2: Oh, I mean, I think outcomes is a, is an equally bad uh, yeah. kind of thing to fixate on. Um, yeah. I, like I, I think definitely for kids, I, you know, obviously I, I, I teach adults. And um, I teach adults, like I, I'm up the front of the classroom and so on. I don't just put adults in a room with computers and whatever. Um, but with kids, uh, I, I think that the worst thing that you can do for their education is try and take control over it. Uh, they're just like, they're not going to trust you. You're going to get Elliot's experience where his, uh, uh, his he um, loses points or whatever for using a <laughs> wire loop. Uh, you're just immediately going to lose faith that you're going to become disenfranchised and, um, and not want to do it anymore. Where if you just, like, backed off and let them learn, they would have I right, So, for the folk listening in at home, my, my daughter at the moment is seven months old. She, she's almost walking. And um, it has been amazing to see her learn all the skills along the way. You don't just, like, start walking. Mm-hmm. Some kids do, actually, but generally you'll crawl and then uh, you learn to stand. And, but in each of these things, there are a lot of smaller skills. You crawl uh, you know, on your belly first, you crawl backwards first, whatever. Um, if, if I had been a teacher here and tried to show her the steps, the sequence, the progression, uh, it would have been a disaster. She would have been crying. She would have oh. learned much more slowly. Uh, and she would have lost faith in me but there's there's something in her that tells her what the next progression is that she should she should try and learn you know at the moment she'll stand up hold on to something take a few steps squat down I think like these are these are particular um uh, things that she's she's training herself with she just she just knows to do that um and uh she enjoys it even when it's a struggle she keeps doing it and uh I, I've got to believe that if she were in a context where she could continue doing this until she was 18 or something, yeah. she would learn a tremendous amount and just like go from crawling to walking to calculus. To, <laughs> to <laughs> Natural reaction. Euclidean geometry. Uh,
0: yeah. It's the diamond age in yeah, practice. Yeah. yeah,
2: it is. It is.
0: So I know that you've, you've done teaching and things like that now, but um, as it like, when you first went into industry, Mm -hmm. how did your, how was that transition for you going from the, you know, even you're in school, but you're still like actively learning and stuff. And then you're thrust into an environment where, you know, you got to hit your OKRs or, um, you know, do these tickets where you might not necessarily like agree with them. And it's like, it's obviously school is not fully self-directed, but you're, I'm imagining you're constrained in some way. And I'm wondering how that experience went.
1: Yeah. I think I was lucky because my very first internship the project was well scoped and the project was very self-contained. So it felt not it, it didn't feel like I was being forced to fulfill certain business functions. It felt like, oh, I have this cool thing. It's very challenging. I have to like try to figure out how to do this. For for to be a little bit more specific, the first project that I had was to take one of their take one of the distributed systems. Sorry, that's a terrible way to describe a system. The the first project was there was a in memory cache that was a single point of failure with the way that the system was deployed and so the intern the internship project was to replicate it and to set up automatic failover to make the system more fault tolerant and make sure that that wasn't a single point of failure and I think the I I wasn't really thinking about like oh do I how do I feel about this I was just thinking. If I screw up in this internship, I'm going to, like, have no, like, not have anything to eat. So <laughs> I just, like, I went all in on trying to make that work. I was, like, printing out code and, like, reading it at night and, like, trying to f- do everything I could to, to try to make to yeah. to try to make this project work out. So really, I was just so into it that I didn't really pay attention to, mm-hmm. to that. So was this a Palantir? Well? This was
2: a Palantir, yeah. And then your first job was a Palantir? That's right. Did you get... Like an offer after your internship or how did I work?
1: Yeah, I got an offer after my internship. I was... Let's see. What was the... So I want to be careful about the, the timeline here. My winter quarter of my senior year or my winter quarter of my fourth year in university, I applied for this internship and I got accepted to this internship. I told them that, hey, I'm going to take my spring quarter off and I'll give this internship a shot. And then afterwards... I gave them the expectation that, yeah, I may be going to go back to undergrad, but if you give me a full-time offer, I might also stick around. Whereas in reality, there was no way I was going back to school. I was like all in on trying to get a full-time yeah. offer. So yeah, I did that internship. I sort of put everything that I had into that internship. And then they gave me a return offer. And they said, yeah, we know you, we know you kind of want to go back to school, but you did really well on the internship. So here's a, here's a full-time offer. We would, we would love if you would, you would join us. Nice. So we ended up working out that
2: way. Nice, and your parents have forgiven you at this point for not finishing your undergrad. Or my a-
1: parents have forgiven me, but my the rest of my extended family has no idea that I don't have a degree. So maybe we <laughs> <Yeah>. shouldn't <laughs> like redact yeah. this part of the podcast.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, but it is what it is.
0: Yeah, uh, it, well, you could tell them you're a teacher, like you're you're like teaching adults uh-huh. right now, which is. Uh- <laughs> That that, won't, that doesn't, yeah, cut no, doesn't, doesn't cut it? No, it doesn't cut it. It's like,
1: I have, to, I have to make sure that I get a degree, preferably a master's or a PhD. Right. I have to make sure that I have a house. I have to make sure that I get married. And then at that point, <laughs> they'll probably have a new set of things that they're unhappy with me about. But <laughs> yeah. you know how parents are. Oh my god! Or excuse me, you know how like parents and grandparents are.
0: Yeah. Expectations. Yeah. Too many. The uh, the job, how, how did it live up to the internship? Like, obviously the internship went well. Yeah. Um, and you, and you, I don't. know, How long were you at this company?
1: I was. So I was there for two years, okay. not including the internship. Yeah. And I think there was something about the going all in that was lacking during the full time. During the full time, like at that point, it was okay. It's it's more settled. There's less pressure, and it's also for an internship. Projects are designed specifically. To make it compelling, to make them want to come back and to be very well scoped and very, very fun in a way. Yeah. But full time, it's like, okay, you have, you have these tasks, here are all these business requirements, we want to get all these things done. So it was, it, I think it was a good place to learn engineering best practices, but I don't think it was nearly as fun as it was during my internship.
0: Were you doing? Project Euler on the side. Had you already <laughs> completed it? Like, was that a, like when you finally completed them? Was that like majorly disappointing to you? I you
1: did not complete all of them. Okay, actually. so I've I've done about three hundred sixty-four of them.
0: Are we still working on one of them? Three sixty-five. Like when you did this, <laughs> yes, so you can be mulling it over in your head.
1: Yeah. So if I ever get to the point, it's basically, almost all of my vacations involve solving some Project Euler problems. But like, <laughs> I was like take winter break. All right, I'm gonna do like fifty problems. Yeah. That's that's how it goes. But yeah, at some point in my life, it's probably on my bucket list to, to do all of them. Yeah, I, I was solving them basically during like winter breaks or during time off as a way to rediscover how much I like the pure act of programming, how much I like this sort of pure problem-solving aspect of it. And it's just sort of a very way to pick me up when I'm down or it's like a very, very mm-hmm. morale kind of thing.
0: Did that um, Did that spark any sort of like... Self rediscovery in terms of like how you were thinking about your career, like as you're as you're coming in, and I think we talked to a lot of people who are like hitting the second year of their sort of first job, and totally. How do you how did you start to think about like what am I going to do next?
1: Yeah, those are really great questions. Those are really thoughtful questions. As a 22 year old, I was not a thoughtful person, (laughs) so I was not thinking about those sorts of questions. I was just like, to be to be honest, I feel like a lot of my early 20s I was just coasting. I was in a situation that was pretty stable. But I wasn't, I didn't have a clear sense of where I was going. I didn't have a clear sense of why I was doing what I was doing. So I was just kind of, kind of there. And I'm lucky that I picked up some pretty good engineering habits along the way, but I don't think I have answers to your thoughtful questions. Nice.
0: Well, you can spend more time thinking about that problem. Yeah. And, um, I guess, uh, how did you, how did you then, like, you were there two years, how did you bounce into the next role? Were you just looking for a new challenge? Were you looking for a different type of engineering role?
1: Yeah. I actually took a long time off after I left Palantir. I spent about six months basically just reading textbooks. I was like, okay, I have been in this industry. I'm a little bit disillusioned by the... Earlier I mentioned that in industry you have to be very pragmatic and you have to like really for example don't do the elegant solution do the do the quick thing that makes it work mm-hmm. or always put the business need ahead of any sort of intellectual satisfaction mm-hmm. i think i was a little bit tired of that and i wanted to just take the time to fully explore things that i was curious about so between september 2014 and february 2015 i literally just like all right i have a bunch of these textbooks I'm going to read and problems I'm going to do and I'm just going to spend all my free time doing that like that was my life for those six Mm -hmm. months
2: what was the best textbook that you uh, read in that time?
1: oh it's a it's a toss up between okay so not during that time there's another stretch where I where I did that Uh but during that stretch I think the best book was computability and logic okay so before I before I read that I had no idea what like a Turing machine is I had no idea what all these concepts were but I ended up like coding up a Turing machine and, and like coding up something called an abacus machine, which is very similar, and like building multiplication using like a Turing machine. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like this is from the ground up, this is how all these all these ideas work. And I, I really enjoyed enjoyed that. And then the second time I had a chance to just take a bunch of time off and just read textbooks. That time I would definitely have to say it's either elements of programming or structure and interpretation of computer programming. So one of those two, but I think, yeah, they just have so many great problems in those in those books.
0: What is your? Because a textbook to me feels a little bit different from the incremental building, like tricking you into learning, a la the um, Euler and the uh, Silicon Zeros type uh, thing, yeah. where it's it's definitely a different. Um, pedagogical method and what's your take on textbook as a transmitter of information
1: cool so there's a very particular way that i read textbooks i got this actually from a math teacher very early on but the way i read textbooks is i will read until i get to something that says like example or exercise or theorem and then i'll read the i'll read the problem itself i'll close the book try to solve it myself or like try to prove it myself or like try to figure it out myself and then only after i've given it a fair shot i'll look at what the book did and like compare it to that i think a lot of people will just like read past it and say oh yeah i know how that works without actually giving it a shot themselves mm-hmm. and so they'll kind of substitute recognition or maybe like be like "Ah, oh, yes i understand this but that's so different from being able to come up with it yourself so basically the way i do it is i turn a textbook into a
2: series of problems that way you, you've got to do it that way I think anyone who learns from textbooks has figured out that this is the I've not figured to, this out yeah you, you've got to like textbooks universally have bad problems in the problem sets like they're just uh, afterthoughts or you know maybe there's some secret an some example problems, yeah you know, where the, where the, there's like some thought put into the the problems but no matter what uh, the onus is on you to generate Problems from what you're reading, and, and try and solve them, like make an earnest attempt to solve them before looking at the answer. Otherwise, you're just not going to retain any of it.
0: This, yeah, this is this sort of like thinking you know by recognition and think that is that is like the story of my life. I think with trying to read some of these textbooks you, and then, it, and then it, and everyone else, yeah, because
2: yeah. it it doesn't seem like when you pick up the textbook, it seems like it's transmission of knowledge and that mm-hmm. like that works. Or When you watch a video lecture or something, you take a Coursera course and you watch someone talk at you, it's the same thing, right? Like yeah. you're passively sitting there and taking the, the information. You so, assume that you're going to learn that way, but it's the exact opposite. So
0: you're like, it is a book, there is a linear sequence. Uh-huh. We're assuming that everything that you need for a given stop point has been transmuted up to that point linearly. Is that is that the contract, basically?
1: Well, sometimes there are prerequisites, right? They might say, yeah. oh, we expect that you. Have basic knowledge of like programming or probability or, or something, mm-hmm. but in general, yeah, I would say you can you can usually count on them to build up what they need before you get to the point. Okay. But oftentimes, I find myself having to backtrack several times to like to realize, oh, I actually
2: didn't understand this thing two chapters before. Cool. You know, like, Maybe you have to backtrack to an earlier topic. <laughs> Maybe <you're gonna> backtrack <laughs> to I don't know to if the they go category. back. Far, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if they <laughs> go back <laughs> far <laughs> <laughs> enough, Oz. <Yeah. laughs> Um, Michael Nielsen talks about reading papers this way where uh, it was a revelation for him uh, when and it, it seems like he'd been reading papers for a long time before this but uh, at one point he realized the paper is really an invitation to prove all of the things that the paper proves yourself from scratch uh, without looking at the paper and only using the paper for assistance because obviously you don't want to take as long as the original authors mm-hmm. but um for ev- for every step in the in the math paper, like figuring out yourself, it's just a yeah. a series of puzzles. Yeah, I wish that were the case for biology
1: papers, though. I feel like, right, don't yeah. have access to a lab, can't like replicate all the author's experiments. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's the sad thing as well about certain textbooks. It's um, it's much harder to generate uh, questions, problems about economics, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, where you have a kind of. A, w- a way to test those. Interesting. Um, Seems straightforward. All you have to do
1: is design a massively successful online game, right. get everybody <laughs> on it, and then start running experiments
0: in the in-game economy. Are you referring to a thing that actually happened or no?
1: Yeah, like different MMOs, like EVE Online will hire an economist to manage their oh, in-game economy. Okay. Or to make sure like the price of certain goods doesn't crash or things yeah. like that. That would be a really cool job, by the way, if I wasn't an engineer. Maybe my next lifetime, I'll try to try to go for that one.
0: It doesn't sound like it's beyond your grasp. So there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, some uh, this is I'm reminded of a bit of our earlier discussion. I just read the Claude Shannon biography. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'd you would recommend it? it. It was great. It was great. And I watched the film too. Oh yeah. The film was funny because for a while I thought, oh, this is an actual, this is actually the video of Claude Shannon, and mm-hmm. no, they had like a paid actor kind of recreating some of his famous interviews uh-huh. but it, it was both were fantastic and he had this sort of patron or mentor Vannevar Bush uh-huh. and this was one of the he was the differential now ana- analyzer, analyzer machine analyzer, yeah, yeah. like a big analog computer and he picked Shannon to come in and help make it like easily reprogrammable that's when Shannon wrote I think the his first paper at age the first big paper at age 22 about Uh, Boolean logic and circuits yeah Yeah, the master's thesis and then he did such a good job there Bush was kind of thinking can I take this knowledge this person and apply it to an entirely different field and Uh see if they can come up with first class knowledge right away so he then sends him off to Long Island and he's working for the US like genetics office and it is true like basically he works there for a year as a full time geneticist and he and Shannon admits like I didn't know any of these terms before coming in and within a year he was able to come up with a pretty good paper that ended up never getting published and i think some of the things that he thought he had discovered had been discovered by other people but mm-hmm. he just didn't have enough time to read all of the like references and things like that so if i can if i can play that to you i think if you take another six month hiatus uh w- world of Warcraft economist <laughs> <laughs> it feels very doable oh thank you yeah
2: the the thing that really struck me in that book was how playful the guy was i mean so like so much of the stories are about him just like spending months making what was the um the device called whose only purpose was the ultimate machine the ultimate machine yeah so you know google it if you're listening to this um or unicycling and juggling and whatever else
0: what was Um, it the theseus the mouse
2: yeah like um
0: have you read this book i have not it's awesome yeah uh it should be in the library here yeah
2: yes yeah no, there's a copy yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, all, all of Shannon's work was about uh, play and curiosity and exploring that and seeing what happened and um, that's how he playfully applied Boolean Algebra which no one cared about at the time uh, which Shannon was only exposed to because he just happened to take a philosophy class uh, to circuits uh, like sitting there his job was to manage the, to work on the differential analyzer and uh, no one else there considered applying something like that to this device was a was a big leap yeah. um, so that kind of creativity I think only comes through that curiosity or that playfulness like if you take it if you're really serious about the job I don't think you can make such a big leap because yeah. it's just outside of your field of view
0: it's nice to, to have an employer like Bell Labs that allows you to yeah. ride down the hallway <laughs> right. with <Yeah>. a unicycle, <laughs> yeah. juggling bowling pins. But yeah, I guess if you write a couple of good papers, then you can we, yeah. Well, yeah, pass. I
2: mean, at, at that's, uh, I think by the time he had... By the time he arrived at Bell Labs, he'd already come up with information theory, right?
0: So, no, no, that was at Bell Labs. I, I was at Bell yeah. Labs, okay. Yeah. But it was early in Bell Labs, and after that, everyone was sort of expecting him because he had come up with some theories about some um, equation for transmitting things, which Uh didn't get really solved until the eighties. And everyone's kind of like waiting for him to work on that next. He's like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Have you seen my mechanical mouse? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like the bell, that whole bell labs experiment is awesome.
2: Yeah. I mean, the experiment is being rerun many times over there. Many, many companies in in the Bay area. They're trying to beat the next bell labs. Um, you know, what I hear about Google Brain is that many people are treating it like that, and, mm-hmm. you know, including the leadership. And that means that if you get if you have something interesting to work on, a mechanical mouse or something, you can probably uh, justify working on it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not too late for you either, Charlie.
0: OK. I, now that I know how to read a textbook properly. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so, Elliot, what else? Um, where does that sort of take us in your path right now? In My career path. In your career path.
1: Yeah, so after several of these, like, all right, I'm going to read textbooks, I have no idea what I want to do. At that point, I want to make it all glamorous and stuff, but realistically, I ran out of money and I was like, all right, time to go back into software engineering. So I ended up joining Dropbox at the time. So I joined the search team at Dropbox, where we were basically working on building a search engine from scratch to index all of the Dropbox document data so that you could so the users could find it using full text search mm-hmm. so I was there for two years as well
0: okay and were you there through the IPO or is this post or pre I
1: got there a little bit before the IPO okay
0: cool yeah uh, I mean that the transformation of that company is like pretty incredible from like simple utility into like now it's like a full on Microsoft Definitely. office competitor yeah any and like what's a high level takeaway from like going through, like I've never worked at a company that's gone through an IPO. What was that like? Did that affect you at all? Like hopefully, I guess the answer is it didn't affect us. We were still working on our search engine, etc. It was fine. But like what was your personal experience there?
1: Yeah, to be honest, first of all, I didn't get there that much earlier than the IPO. Yeah. So it wasn't like I saw the company grow from 10 to, to thousands. It was already no. like, it, it was already pretty big by the time I got there. Hmm. But it didn't actually affect me personally that much. There was a, there was this massive party the day of the IPO where like everybody got up at six to like go go to the office and like.
0: Oh, because that's when the bell rings or oh, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, Ring the bell okay. and
1: like, do, do all that stuff. But I actually slept in that day. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even go. Hard. And then for, for for me it was just business as usual. I think at the time I didn't realize what a big deal it was for a company's IPO. I was like, oh okay, I guess I guess this is happening. Yeah. But in retrospect, I guess it's it's something special. But I I don't know. I don't tend to make a big deal about stuff like that. Maybe I should.
0: Yeah, I think I am someone who just, I, I'm i ready to wear the full t- branded t-shirt of whatever place I join like very quickly. I'm like a, a very fast fan. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is probably, who knows if that's a, the best quality of mine. but It seems like companies would in. love that. They do. Yeah, I'm um, really annoying that way. <laughs> yeah. So a couple years at Dropbox. Do we want sure. any questions about that or? I'm definitely curious about how you're – when you sort of like started teaching on the side and how you're, I think, applying your own knowledge to like help other people because I know that you, you were – you still do some, teach some of the courses at Bradfield. And so when did that emerge as like a hobby or an interest or something you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I've been interested in teaching slash tutoring slash that sort of thing for a really long time. Even in high school, I was like tutoring people in math or tutoring people in in, in various things. And – yeah, I, I wouldn't say there was like a moment where I suddenly decided, all right, I'm going to start teaching. But I took the databases course with Oz and I realized, oh my gosh, this is like the best thing ever. This is another opportunity for me to like pour all of my time and attention and effort into a fun project. Like at the time, Dropbox was having a hack week. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to like go all in on the databases course. And that was one of the most fun, most engaged that I've been in, in anything for a few years. So I was like, okay. I gotta get involved with with this. And Oz is super cool. I wanna like have an excuse to hang out with Oz more. So that's I think how the getting involved with the algorithms course kinda happened. That's why Charlie
2: does the podcast by the way.
0: Hanging out with you? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You guys should reevaluate the decision to start this thing then. (laughs) No, I I really like editing things (laughs) Oz. I would uh, the other thing is I thought I was getting better and then people said the last episode was like one of the worst, most hardest things to hear.
2: Oh, just because we weren't speaking? Yeah. I
0: mean, sorry, Grant, but you were like the very faint of voice or something. There's definitely some, I have some YouTube videos to watch that'll help me get better at editing. So it's, it's a work in progress, everyone. But we, I feel like we've been talking pretty loudly today. Sure.
1: But when you watch the YouTube video, make sure when it tells you, okay, we're going to do this, pause it and then try <laughs> to do it and then see how they do it.
0: Oh God. You have your own way of learning that's worked for you well when teaching a group of people and this is also for you do you feel biased to sort of encourage people to use your methods for doing things like this textbook thing do you like because it i don't know i i've never really taught a class or anything like that so how do you how do you counterweight like effective advice against things that potentially are just like weird things that only work for you
1: cool so i think there are a few things that are like strictly better than other things for example i do believe that the actively reading a textbook is strictly better than just trying to be a sponge that being said when i teach i try to always start with okay where are you at what is your current level of understanding i always try to build a mental model of the students or i I, I try to build up a mental model of the student's mental model before doing anything else i don't want to like give blanket advice before i even know where where they're at i don't know if you have another approach
2: yeah, it, it's, a, it's a little more challenging in the classroom than, say, if you were teaching someone one-on-one. Right. Um, there is a certain expectation of what will be, what will be covered, so to speak, like uh, what the scope of the, the course is. Um, and then everyone's coming from a different kind of background. So uh, I think as a matter of principle, uh, I take the same approach to my students that I do with my own learning, which is to say, it's, it's most important that we have guided struggle. That's if we're not struggling, we're not learning. Uh, obviously, that should be fun and not painful. Uh, that's where the guidance comes in. Uh, obviously, it's somewhat my job to motivate the struggle, like to make it seem like a worthwhile or interesting struggle. Um, so I try and do that as much as possible. But uh, there are always going to be specific ways of doing that that are interesting to me and not other people. So as a as an example, we've been talking about Project Euler a lot. Very few software engineers are going to get hooked on Project Euler. Mm. So if I were to take the average software engineer and say, "Hey, this is the super exciting thing," and I bet if you do a couple, you will end up being a lifelong addiction, and uh, you'll learn a whole bunch of mathematics, and they'll do a couple, and they won't enjoy it. And uh, now there's this dissonance between their experience and my advice. Mm. Uh, and I've lost a lot of credibility or um, they, even worse, instead of uh, taking it out on me, they take it out on themselves and they think, am I not a real software engineer or am I really going to be able to succeed? So that's why I avoid uh, strongly suggesting that kind of thing other than to say, I did this and and found a lot of fun. Uh, Sometimes I'll say something like, uh, Silicon Zero is, this is what it is if you're the kind of person who yeah. finds this fun then you'll find it fun yeah uh, like, if this kind of thing <laughs> sounds fun to you then I suggest <laughs> that it's probably going to be fun and that's as much as I can do and then I'll just try and suggest as many like a diverse set of these things yeah. for some people it's going to be like work on this very practical thing that you see as applicable to your, your data at work and for some people it's going to be the total opposite of that uh, but I do I do always think it's about the challenge the struggle the 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 fun of doing something or making something at least in software i I can't speak to well it's
0: nice that there's so many random paths that you can go down with like a lot of free fun either games or resources Uh yeah so if you're like generically looking for something you as a teacher can generically throw a bunch of things in the air and some people are going to like gravitate towards certain things Yeah. yeah what about in the classroom when you're observing like how do you i know that there's some criticism of textbooks or even even classrooms having to like teach to the mean Mm -hmm. and how do you balance a given lecture or something where you can tell that there's a few folks who are super engaged there's some that may or may not get it and there's some that are checking their phones or picking their noses
1: yeah i haven't detected any nose picking okay good good.
0: (laughs) you haven't been looking perhaps
1: yeah i think first of all you can get a pretty good sense from the sorts of questions that people are asking from to, to get a sense of where they're at. I also think that it's very important to check in with the class periodically to, rather than telling them something be like, cool, so what?" I'll be like, okay, so what is the definition of this thing? Or like, what is your understanding of this thing? How would you approach this thing? And that'll also be really good for getting a pulse on where the class is at. In terms of the whole teaching to the mean thing, I think what I like to do is... Basically, there's going to be a lot of breakout sessions because yeah. the class is very interactive. So that gives a chance to go to someone who's maybe, maybe has already seen the material and give them a challenge problem, or maybe spend a little bit of time with someone who is still trying to get on board with the with the material. But...
0: That first bit about checking in is the same intent as when we were kids and we got pop quizzes, but these are like dreaded, horrible things. And mm-hmm. I think maybe because they related to your grade in some way. Yeah. But the, in, to me, it feels like the intent is the same.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes the intent is to grade, unfortunately. Mm. And there's a lot of talk about this in, uh, in teaching cycles, formative assessment is the, is the term. Um, like, uh, people, people don't mind being assessed if it's in a safe uh, environment where it's, it is about
0: a formative out. assessment is ungraded you know, you know, assessment. It's like okay. assessment for
2: the purpose of you, yeah. you know, um, progressing um yeah i i i think it's critical um you, you do need feedback sometimes we get feedback in different ways um but you do need to like there needs to be a loop there you're not just struggling without uh seeing whether it's working or not um but yeah different different classes are going to be harder or easier to, to do this in um, algorithms uh, which lh t- teaches is uh, i think pretty good the way we have it set up is, um, is good for this kind of thing where uh, students split up into pairs they work on problems and it's fairly straightforward to see how different pairs are progressing and mm-hmm. like turn the knob you know, once, once you've told the course a few times um, turn the knob uh, to make it easier or harder for people mm-hmm. so Actually, kind of what George Polya suggests. Like you're you're really struggling at this point. Let's pick an easier problem to solve. Uh, right. Let's uh, let's find a an angle on this where your your challenge is not to solve the problem. Your challenge is to uh, like figure out this piece of it. Um, and then for people who have nailed it, then you know after after a while you've got a bank of more challenging variants of the problem, uh-huh. entirely different problems on the same theme that you can. That, that
0: reminds me of a Shannon thing too in the book yeah. where someone again with Bell Labs there was so much interplay of people coming in and out and someone comes into his room completely different department math or physics or who knows what and he's got this problem he's struggling with and I guess he wasn't math because Shannon was in the math department but he comes in and someone had suggested he go to Shannon and Shannon starts whiteboarding it out outlines the problem and this is his this guy's masterwork that he stumped on and Shannon says well if you look at this you don't really need this part, do you? And he's like, yeah, I guess not. Throws this out. And then he looks at another. They go a little deeper. Throws this out. Throws this out. Throws this out. And it's now a very rudimentary small problem. And for a while, the guy was getting flustered. And this is my life's work. And he's mm-hmm. kind of ma- pointing out these things. But then they solve this fundamental thing. And once they figure that out, they start layering the stuff back on. And by the end of it, he's figured it all out in some weird way. So it's pretty cool. That uh, that sort of like uncovering of the sub problems. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, that's one of the things that I struggle with in teaching. Uh, computer science is a weird way of describing it because at, at this at this point, it's about teaching people about computer systems, um, because there can be this big hairy problem, and my way of helping the student with that maybe to focus them on a narrow piece of it, which I think is going to unlock the whole thing. But, um, I struggle to describe how I get to the process of focusing on that small piece of it. Like how do you choose which piece? How to do you choose design? which piece? Yeah. Because you're, you're, presented with something, the code's not compiling. There are all these like, uh, error messages. There are 20 of them, which, and the instinct is to like start Googling them in order or something, or mm-hmm. what, like based on what looks like the most severe. Um, but then uh, it turns out that the core problem is, 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 is not really reflected in the error messages and so there are kind of some intuitive leaps that you need to make to have a hypothesis that's reasonable about that so I don't I don't really know how to like convey on a, on a similar
1: note I think something I'm struggling with is how do you figure out which approach might make sense for a problem like how do you how do you look at a problem and realize oh this is actually secretly a X problem mm-hmm. or like secretly a graph problem secretly a mm-hmm. dynamic mm-hmm. programming problem I haven't Really figure out how to how to transmit that besides saying solve a lot of problems and you'll build up an intuition
0: so in your when you're looking at a problem you can rather quickly tell and you're, you're saying in context of a student how does a student get that sort of experience how can a
1: student get yeah. sort of experience to know what might be promising to try first how do they figure out what approaches they might want to prioritize when they're tackling something like this
2: oh. well once you're familiar with recursion you're familiar with recursion that's right <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh baby, because these problems while, uh, are so heavily used in interviews. What is your what is your take on on um, gleaning information about candidates from their solutions to these problems? Because right. you can uh, you can definitely like learn the tactics and things like that.
1: Cool. So first of all, these opinions are my own. They do not reflect the opinions or yeah. Okay, <laughs> disclaimer. But. <laughs> I think they would go much better if nobody prepared for them. Hmm. I think there's sort of an arms race where people, oh, it's it's like, I also think people should not study for tests. Like the concept of, I have a midterm in two days, I'm going to cram for it so, so that I do well. That just, first of all, it's such a waste of time, but second of all, I think it defeats the entire purpose of test taking, which is to take a random sample of the student's knowledge. And to use that as a way to assess the student's ability in an entire field, but if the student's prepared specifically for that topic, or if they've like memorized a bunch of algorithms problems, then I think that defeats the entire point of the interview, the or at least the the stated purpose of those style of interview problems. Mm-hmm. So while we can argue a lot about whether it's a good idea to ask these sorts of algorithms questions for a software engineering position, let's. Give them the benefit of the doubt and let's say that yeah okay by watching someone's problem-solving process you can learn a lot about how they approach problems like how tenacious they are whether they're going to give up whether they can apply different problem-solving strategies whether they can improvise adapt i think sure i'll, I'll give it to you maybe there is something to that but i think it's created an industry where there's sort of an arms race between employers and candidates where candidates try to figure out what are the questions they're asking, let me prepare, let me make sure I know all the like tricks involved, let me just make sure that I can solve these problems. And at that point, you're not testing anything except have they prepared for this
0: problem. Well, I think it's like when I took the LSAT a long time ago, and there were certain problems. I don't even. I have no idea what they were called. Uh, logical reasoning or something. There were basically three tactics, and you just had to detect which tactic to use, and you should get a hundred percent in this section. The only way you can learn those three tactics is if you pay. Two thousand dollars to Manhattan GMAT or Manhattan LSAT and get their books, and then they'll teach you the tactics. Um, and in that way, it was like, okay, did you pay the two thousand dollars or not? Is the entire point of that section of that test? Yeah.
2: What's the alternative?
1: Give the problem and say, "Hey, don't don't prepare for the problem." <laughs> 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 yeah, it's like it's like a tragedy of the commons thing, right? Like one person can get an advantage by cramming or like studying for the test or overfitting or, or whatever. And then everyone else must do that. And so now everybody has to waste their time doing this and you've lost all the, all the benefit. But I don't know what to do about it.
0: What are, what are questions that you've asked as an interviewer that you, are you, when you're interviewing, when you're working at a company, mm-hmm. do you, uh, tend to go down the algorithmic route or like, are there like favorite things that you do use to try to uncover that more random sampling of a person's knowledge? Do you ask it an obscure Euler? <laughs>
1: I don't think that would go over too well, okay. to be honest. So what,
0: um, where are you working now? I'm at triple eight. Okay. And what what are you doing there?
1: My title is interview team tech lead. So, so what does that mean? That's a really great question. <laughs> yeah. So basically I'm responsible for a few things. I'm, responsible for designing the interview content, thinking about how to calibrate the grading of the interview, thinking about how to make sure that it's fair and consistent, and basically being in charge of how interviews work at Triplebyte.
0: Cool. Like the, from what I've seen with Byte, there's, there's, it does sort of feel closer to what you're talking about with that sort of take this right now, don't worry, Click this thing. you are good, When we'll give you that sort of like you're probably already better than you think you are type random sampling mm-hmm. approach.
1: Yeah, I would say, especially for the for the quiz. Yeah, other oh, quiz. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's also the interview, but I think their their approach is to say, all right, we're going to tell you exactly what's on the interview, so you so that it's not we're not trying to like sneak one by you. We're going to tell you, okay, we're going to evaluate your your coding. We're going to give you a coding challenge. We're going to evaluate whether you can. See some code, read it, understand it, and debug it. So we're going to give you a debugging challenge. We're Mm -hmm. going to ask you to design a system. It's like they take an approach where it's like very fair. They tell you what what it is ahead of time.
2: Yeah. Cool. The um, the trade off or the spectrum that I've always seen uh, in these kinds of situations is the more Mm. toy like you make the problems, Mm. the. More gameable it is, or yeah. like you're saying, the more you optimize for diligence in preparation. Um, but the more like practical or contextual you make it, the more challenging it becomes to administer this. Oh, clearly, totally. and, and it's
1: really noisy, right? Because a candidate might lose 15 to 20 minutes just because there's some random build issue mm-hmm. or
2: some yeah. issue with their environment, and so you don't want that to affect their outcome. And so I feel like. That end of the spectrum has always worked well for me at small companies. Um, you know, I've only worked at small companies, so it works sure, out. as sure. small as in, you know, max a, a few hundred engineers. Um, because you still can uh, create scenarios like this and have people do real work and assess them and um, do it in a way where uh, you're generally uh, uh, uh uh, free of bias but yep. if I imagine a company like Google doing this where the questions are pretty open-ended uh, it's very easy for someone to decide that your your approach to this uh, um, open-ended problem is um, better or worse mm-hmm. than someone else's then it's going to be a disaster
0: so what are you doing outside of work right now where where are you spending your free time what are you thinking about project or other problem yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, other than number three sixty five. <laughs>
1: Actually, funny enough, I reset my account and I decided to or, or I didn't reset my I I created a new account, decided to start over from scratch because I looked at some of the problems that I solved like seven, eight years ago and like, oh my god, how in the world did I solve that one? <laughs> so yeah. I feel like I have to go back to square one and like build up all that all that knowledge again. Okay. So that's that's where I'm at. I don't know, I'm just generally trying to get various parts of my life together. Yeah. Like I feel like I lived my early 20s being very clueless about how things work and just like coasting along these days I'm just trying to like focus on things like eating better doing more fitness dressing better trying to understand how like finances work just all the things that make one a functioning member of society a functioning adult yeah exactly
0: well let me know when you figure those out too thank you I'll do do I wanted to ask is this uh, this looks like I, my initial reaction of who's on your shirt was uh, the enemy... I'm so bad, I can't remember this. Liquid Snake from Metal Gear Solid is who it reminds me of. Okay, who Who's on nice. your shirt?
1: I don't know if this is a named character. Oh, okay. Basically, I just really like the 80s retro aesthetic. Yeah, it's so,
0: pretty awesome. Yeah.
1: I think there's a big synthwave following at Bradfield. There
2: is, yeah. There's a synthwave Slack channel. I think what it's does that mean? Inactive. I don't really know. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like yeah uh, retro electronic yeah. revival that's right
1: inside. all the all the music genres in the 80s had wave after like new wave oh yeah or wave yeah or whatever so okay. Sweet. it's electronic synth wave
0: yeah nice this is great yeah nice one elliot where if people want to follow you on twitter or you on anything like that or are you off the grid
1: I am pretty off the grid right nice. now.
0: Nice. Okay. Let's see a project oily username. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, somebody's gonna look at like, whoa, whoa. your new
0: one and it's like he this guy hasn't solved one problem.
2: <laughs> cool.
1: But generally I think if people want to find me on the internet, my usually my alias is robot dreams, robot dreams. Okay. So that's my GitHub. That might be the only one. Oh I, I also have a medium, but
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you can star some of some of your repos cool. to show some love All right, awesome what's your favorite repo of yours that you want people to focus on of my repos yeah oh. you don't have to answer that that's a fake question <laughs> okay <laughs> all right